Don't be intimidated by those who are older than you. Simply be the example they need to see by being faithful and true in all that you do. Speak the truth and live a life of purity and authentic love as you remain strong in your faith. Hey, I'm Deanna. Thanks for your company. You've probably heard that quote from 1 Timothy 4.12 before, so let me ask. Are you actively building something bigger than yourself that will outlast your time here on earth? Is your activism a solo or group effort? Have you been intimidated that because of your current lack of finance or maybe even your age that there isn't much of a part for you to play? Or perhaps you simply haven't yet figured out what problem you're passionate about solving. There are more than 600 million people around the world without access to safe, clean water. The need is immediate and there are plenty of ways to get involved with various charitable causes gunning for your support every day. The point is, you are a change maker however and wherever you seek to make a difference. Today I'm speaking with Seth Maxwell, the CEO of Thirst Project. This powerful community for change is the world's largest youth water organisation. Over half a million students across the United States have collectively raised $10 million to date improving the lives of countless people in developing nations and impoverished communities. What's more, Thirst Project guarantees that 100% of all public donations go directly towards well projects, with the charity finding other creative ways of sustaining their staff and administration. I'm really interested to hear more about Thirst Project's dynamic initiatives and journey to becoming what is now the world's leading youth water activism organisation. For Seth Maxwell, the charity's founder, it wasn't a road he expected to take. Uh, so today, still, there are about 663 million people on our planet who just don't have access to basic, safe, clean drinking water. And besides being a big number, what it practically means is that in developing communities around the world, typically women or kids will walk from their homes to whatever standing water sources are available. So it's often rivers, ponds, swamps drinking from these open, unprotected sources, which are often shared with animals that'll both drink and defecate in the same water source as people, causes people to get really easily preventable waterborne diseases. So most people don't realize things as simple as diarrhea or dysentery actually kill more kids every year than HIV and malaria combined. Uh, So we build freshwater wells, pit latrines, hand washing stations in developing countries to give people clean water, which isn't super unique. There are lots of great water organizations. But what is is that while we're definitely not the oldest, we're certainly the largest youth water organization. Uh, So we have a, a school tour that actually travels across the country, speaking at assemblies at high schools and colleges to educate students about the water crisis and then challenge those students to take action and fundraise to build real water projects around the world. So And this year, the tour will go speak to about 520 campuses, uh, about 100,000 students who in turn will do things like dances, walks, video game tournaments, and then we commit to give 100% of all the money that they raise directly to build water projects. So all of our operations expenses are funded by a private group of donors led by our board. But to date, we raised about $10 million that we've used to build water projects in 13 countries, giving about 370,000 people safe, clean water indefinitely. It is extraordinary, not just because of the good work that you're doing, which needs to be done. We need clean water wells. We need as many charities who can do that good work as possible uh, to bring change. But just how incredible, the thing I find really incredible is how you've managed to rally 
Gen Z and students. And we can talk about that. We can talk about the power of Gen Z because Thirst Project is student uh, student powered, like you've like you've said, raising ten million dollars. I mean, that's over seven million pounds, and I think it really demonstrates the capability of change that young people have, not to write anyone off because they're under the age of sort of 25 or they don't earn a lot of income yet because they're still studying or they're still in high school. How have you managed to build a a cause that really engages with young people in this way? Absolutely. I mean, we believe at the core of who we are as an organization, and that's kind of why I pointed out earlier, like there are lots of great water organizations. uh, But for us, we believe that young people are the most powerful agents for social change in the world. Um, And it's not something we say just because it sounds good or as a bumper sticker, but we really believe it. And we have seen young people make action and take, take action and make change in some of the most incredible ways possible. I mean, whether it is literally eight, nine, ten-year-olds uh, giving up birthdays and saying that they don't want gifts and asking family and friends to donate instead of building, you know, instead of giving them gifts, or whether it's students doing walks or rallies or dance marathons uh, and locking themselves in rooms until they raise a certain amount of money, like it's it's pretty incredible to see both the innovation that young people have when it comes to how to go about raising awareness and raising funds to build water projects, but also just the capacity that they have. And so I think that for us so much of the DNA of who we are. I mean, we, we sort of fell into the youth space when we first began, but it's now very much, you know, intrinsic to the story and who we are as, as an organization. And so when it comes to everything from how we tell our story on our school tour, you know, the, the people that are speaking on the tour are not me, right? Like I'm, I'll turn 31 next month. And so I've definitely aged out a long time ago, <laughs> with, like, like with our young people. It's true. Like there's something powerful when a peer stands on stage in front of you, all of our speakers on our tour, right? There are eight speakers per semester uh, who head out on these kind of epic road trips across the country. Each of them are between the ages of 18, 22, maybe 23, right? So there's something powerful when someone who looks like you, talks like you, uh, dresses like you, stands on stage and says, you don't have to be older. You don't have to have more money. You don't have to have a higher education to make a real impact in your world. And and we can not only say it as sort of a, a nice sort of inspirational rallying cry, but we can demonstrate how you're one of X number of students. In our case, every year, there are about 360,000 students uh, who this year will take action with us in schools across the country. Uh, We can't physically go speak at all the schools and students we work with. But um, and so I think for us, like what we've seen is as students live that out and truly power the work that we're doing, we've just become more and more intentional about uh, unapologetically being an organization that exclusively caters to that audience. And that's not to say that, you know, Obviously, if uh, what we very lovingly call an old person, which I'm an old person, anybody, you know, 25 <laughs> and older, uh, if, and if an old person comes to us and says, hey, I want to give you money, you, of course, like we will take it uh, all day long and do good work with it. But that's not the audience that we cater everything from messaging, whether that's social to events to programming. I mean, we exist to serve young people and connect them with opportunities to make real world impact in their world and equip and develop them as young leaders who ultimately, in this case, are working to end the global water crisis. Would you say then that peer-to-peer conversation is part of the success in um, Thirst Project really rallying young people? Because, of course, your cause is brilliant. There's no no question about cause. I'm just fascinated at how you've managed to be the world's largest youth water organisation. I mean, that is a mean feat. And I'm sure there are many companies or Christian organisations and ministries who would love the impact 
on young people that you are having to get them so involved. Is there a secret? So I think uh, there's a few things that have been really core to the success of being able to activate young people the way we have. You know, we started as a group of young people, right? So even though I'm about to turn 31, we started about a decade ago. So, uh, and really even before that, when I was 19 at school, we started as a club. A couple years later, we incorporated as an organization, but we were born on a college campus. We were born out of a group of 19, 20, 21 year old Southern California and college students who were passionate about this issue and believed we could make impact on it. And from there began asking our friends who were either teachers or administrators at other schools to allow us to come speak to their students and get them involved or who were friends at other schools as students to help us come and get their school involved. And then as it grew, you know, it, it was something where initially before we were even an organization, we were a school club and, and two friends at two other schools asked us to come speak at their school help them start something similar. And so within about a month of speaking at, you know, Berkeley and Esperanza High School in Orange County, those two schools, groups had done fundraisers and raised about $12,000 and in a month, right? And that's when we realized, well, if that's what two schools could do, what if there were 10, 100 schools, 1,000 schools? And so that's what set out the initiative to start the Thirst Project. But to your question of, you know, today, what's kind of sustained that youth engagement movement I think it's a lot of self-awareness. You know, we we make we're pretty unapologetic. Like even myself, like I have not spoken on a school tour for probably six years, right? Just because like there's like I said earlier, I don't resonate with a 14 year old or a 17 year old the way that I did when I was 19, 20, 21. Um, and so there is something powerful about a peer saying like, hey, like you know, it's not an old guy in a suit and tie at an assembly saying don't do drugs. You know, it's it's something where you're presented with a real world issue that's also very solved. Um, and that and that students can make real world impact. And the other though is like down to little things like messaging. Um, the little things we found really are the big things. Right? So you'll never hear, and it's something that in training with our speakers and our, our school tour speakers, like we drill in, like you'll never hear someone on our staff or, or a speaker on the school tour like refer to a student or a young person as a kid. Um, like it just never happens, right? Yeah. And it's something that may sound really small, but looking at the way that we finesse language and messaging and the way we engage with students and also the way we try to listen to what their personal goals are, both, you know, academically and outside of Thirst Project as far as leadership skills, but also within the context of what they want to accomplish, both with their fundraisers and in the world and, and how, what kind of impact they want to make. And then reverse engineering what we ask of them at that specific school or to that specific person to their goals. And so uh, we don't go into schools with like boxes of candy bars or like a, a pamphlet of things to sell and say, hey, go sell this. We're going to go fundraise. Um, really, it, it's, it makes it somewhat challenging for scale over time. But there is a very sort of personal relationship between our student activation team, uh, which is, you know, probably our largest team in terms of full time staffers who build those relationships with student leaders and teacher leaders and help them figure out what their goals are for the year and how to reach those goals. And so I think it's everything from, you know, like I said, using peers, working with peers to actually be the messengers to other students, as well as uh, everything to how we treat students and message to them and cater to what their goals and needs are, as well as that primacy of face-to-face -face with the school tour followed up with, you know, some really sincere and authentic uh, relationship development after that with our team to help them reach their goals. Yeah. I'm really struck by that, actually. Do you think that we speak to young people as kids and not as people 
um, far too often? Do they want to be treated more like intelligent beings who actually can make a change? And are we missing that a lot of the time? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, for me, having had the privilege of watching for the last decade now, uh, you know, almost a million students that we've worked with take action in such incredible ways. Some of the most intelligent, uh, fiercely articulate, fiercely wise student, or people that I've ever seen and encountered in my life are 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, right? Um, I, I, when I gave a TEDx talk a few years ago, literally my opening, my opening line was, maybe an 18-year-old should be president. Or maybe only people under the age of 18 should be allowed to vote. Um, you know, I think we, for so so long now, those of us who have been uh, adults or sort of stewards of power and control have demonstrated we're really not making the wisest choices. And so maybe it is time to try something new. But uh, I, I do. I think that you know there is something really powerful when you meet a young person where they're at and say, look, you know, everything that you're going to encounter in the rest of your life, and this is true of adults, not just young people, but you know, the, the best the world tells us we have to look forward to is that we're born so we can go to school, go to school to get a bunch of good grades, get good grades to get into college, get into a college to get more good grades, get those good grades to graduate and get a great job, get a great job so you can make lots of money, make lots of money to buy a lot of really cool stuff. And then finally you like buy all this really cool stuff so you can die. And like, I think we're all like longing to be invited into something that is more adventurous than that, more meaningful than that. And the, the sort of insidious part of that narrative beyond that, that affects both students and adults is that there's always, the goalpost always moves until you die, right? And so the problem is we all then fall subject to this thinking that, well, if I just had a little more of this, or if I just was a little more of that, then I could go about the business of making impact in the world, right? If I just made a little more money, if there was one more zero in my bank account, then I would be more generous, then I would give more. Or if I just had this degree, right? So for students, so much of what we have to undo in, in working with them is getting them to think like, hey, like, You've been told like the goalpost is grades, then college, then job, then this. Like I'm here to tell you, like the world can't afford for you to wait to just have a little more of something or yeah. be a little more of something. Like the world needs you today, and not only do they need you, you have the capacity to make impact today. And I think that's a that's a message and a truth that is applicable whether you're you know 55 or 15. Yeah, yeah. Um- Taking a look at some of your earlier years when you started Thirst Project, I mean, how many wells would you say that you've constructed now? Do you do you track in that way wells? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're super data driven. Uh, and it's not even for us. Success isn't just measured in number of water projects built or number of people given safe water, although we do track all that. Uh, and to, to answer your question, we've implemented today over 2,600 what we would consider water projects or wash programs. So it's not always a well, although hand pump borehole wells are probably 85 to 90 percent of the water portion of what we do. Um, but it's hand pump wells or spring protection systems, rainwater harvesting systems that are then paired with sanitation and hygiene. So sanitation facilities and hygiene training, because water is really only effective in reducing disease when it's paired with sanitation and hygiene. And so uh, for us, you know, while we certainly track that, like I said, about 2,600 projects, about 360 
almost 370,000 people. Um, what's really success for us is measuring both before and after data, uh, and that's and that's true over time. So before we built a water project, uh, the number of students who were enrolled in school in that community, and can we conclusively say that six months, a year, two years after, that number has gone from, say, 37 students to maybe 70 or 80 students because those students no longer have to spend six to seven or eight hours a day walking to get water. Uh, similarly, can we say that, you know, before water projects or a wash program was built in a community, there was a 29% rate of schistosomiasis. And then six months to a year afterwards, has that been reduced to, say, 2% or zero or 1%, right? Um, can, can we say that there were five cholera deaths prior to uh, building projects and that there are, you know, now zero? So that's success yeah. for us is really measured out in the impact on health, the impact on education, uh, those sort of life elements. And oh gosh, how incredible to be able to measure um, success in that way rather to look at look at the impact, which you can't really put a number on. I mean, you can to an extent and you have a board and you have people who give you money. So you need to be able to show them uh, what their money is doing. But I just think that's inspiring. Looking back at your, um, your earlier days, 10 years ago, when you started the project, I love that, uh, you know, it was you and a bunch of friends, wasn't it, in Southern California that had an idea to, to help people in the world who really needed clean water. And I understand the part of the idea, if not the whole idea, came to you when you were sitting in church. Is that a strange place to have a life-changing idea like this? Or is that exactly where these ideas should come from? Oh, yeah. I don't think it's strange. I think that's definitely where, you know, most of these ideas should come from. But, uh, but you know, my story and sort of how I learned about the water crisis, uh, church was probably the was the last in a series of like three events that happened over the course of about three days, uh, you know, consecutive. So the, the first day I I had coffee with a friend of mine who was a photojournalist who had been sent on an assignment for about a year and a half she was gone. And over that year and a half, she lived every six weeks moving from one community to another. And so she lived in communities across Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, South and Central America. Um, and her job was to document and report on the progress on the UN's millennial development goals. And so uh, because she wasn't just flying in and out of villages really quickly, she was living for six weeks at a time in each of these places, she built pretty incredible, authentic relationships with people and found some just amazing stories. And so when she came home, we got together to catch up over coffee here in LA. And she was really the first person to expose me to the global water crisis. Um, and it wasn't just like, oh, look at this photo or, you know, this, this sad looking kid. It was, no, this is Sophie. She's seven. We hung out for six weeks. We played Barbies. Uh, I watched her die of cholera. Um, and so I left with my whole worldview just kind of shattered and went home and started Googling, trying to find something I could get involved with or, or plug into that might make some kind of impact. And as a young person at that point, you know, a 19 year old, there really wasn't a lot. The next day I, I went to, that was a Friday. The next day I went to the premiere of this uh, movie that dealt with both the Rwandan genocide, but also the aftermath of rebuilding communities and specific development needs from water, sanitation, hygiene, food security, et cetera, um, which was just sort of crazy that, you know, I was like, oh man, I was literally just talking about something like this the day before. And then the next day, Sunday, I was sitting in church and uh, I ended up meeting someone after church who actually worked in water 
water as a, as a hydrologist. And so uh, I, I didn't even know there was a hydrologist in the world, like what that was. Right. And so uh, that was when I discovered that I could, you know, build a freshwater project pretty much anywhere in the world for about $10,000. And I thought, man, okay, you know, I'm, I'm 19. I don't have $10,000 lying around, but I live in Los Angeles. Like how many people waste 10 grand on the most ridiculous things ever? Uh, and so that was really, you know, when I was like, all right, this is too many things back to back. Like, you know, yes, we have church in Los Angeles, by the way. But uh, from that, I was like, all right, I've, I've got to do something. <laughs> do you feel that you need to point out to people that the church is still alive and well? Because for me, it's standard. I know, I know of lots of great churches in Los Angeles, actually. Uh, it's it's just sort of a funny joke, especially when I'm not in LA, like when I'm, you know, traveling. I'm originally, uh, I grew up in Indiana. Uh, my mom's, you know, on staff at her church in uh, in Indiana. And so it's, it's, you know, my faith has always been a huge part of my life. Um, and sort of even like going back to your initial question about young people, you know, that that uh, that scripture in First Timothy that talks about like, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young, but set an example for them in faith. Indeed, it's like, I can't necessarily, because we work in public schools, you know, and because we are, we are not a religious organization, you know, that we've actually had times where we've been faced with opportunities to work with a number of different Christian groups uh, who've offered us significant sums of money. Uh, but there was a sort of a caveat, right? Like, well, you have to only build projects where we can send missionaries or only sure. if there's an evangelical or yeah. uh, proselytizing component. And so we've actually walked away from some of those opportunities. But nonetheless, you know, I know for me, like so, so much of what gives me like super deep joy is like the chair of our board I met at my church, you know, the, our vice president for student activation, like we've worshiped together and there's so many people who so much of why we do what we do is really driven by our faith. Uh, even if we're not, especially because we work in public schools, we're not explicitly a religious organization, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, no, I mean, LA it's, there's so many people here in, in this very rich community who, uh, have come from so many different places. And I, I, we say a lot, like, man, we're in this unique place in this time in history. And, uh, there's there's a lot of amazing things happening here. Well, I mean, that's fair enough. Just because you're a, uh, a committed Christian yourself or you have a faith as yourself doesn't necessarily mean, uh, mean you need to then go on to lead a faith-based or a religious organization. I mean, there's faith, there's space for people of faith to do whatever that they feel God has called them to do. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey in coming to faith or taking faith into what you do. Do you really feel like it's, the thing, the purpose that God has put on your life to, to, to lead an organization like this and to start a change organization like this? Do you feel like it's a calling or that you just fell into it? And you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I definitely feel this is my calling. And it's one of those things where it, even that sounds a little, I don't know, it almost sounds a little like self-righteous, like, oh, I've found my calling. Um, but I, I, it's not what I set out to do. So I, I moved to Los Angeles uh, about 12 years ago, right when I was 18, like so many people out here yeah. with the intention of pursuing the entertainment industry. And so yeah. I uh, I grew up in the Midwest, uh, did a lot of professional theater, um, you know, joined the Actors' Equity Union as a young person. And so uh, got to travel quite a bit and do a lot of theater. And so when I moved to LA, I got my degree in theater thinking, oh, I'm going to go be an actor, right? And, uh, and you sort of heard how I came to learn about the water crisis, what sort of shifted my focus. And so even in the early sort of onset of Thirst Project, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to go run a nonprofit. Um, it was just something where I thought, man, I, I have to do something about this. Nothing had ever quite gripped me the way that the water crisis did. And so 
uh, when we started our club and as we started getting other schools involved, it wasn't really until it became apparent that there was a ton of opportunity, that nobody was activating people our age around this issue. And it became apparent that someone from amongst my group of friends that I was trying to rally, like one of us needed to really lead it. And uh, it was sort of apparent that I needed to do that. And I remember super distinctly having the phone call with my mom right before she came out to L.A., to watch my graduation. And I was like, you know, I've just, we've paid all this money and I've gone to the school to get this degree in theater. And I was like, so how do you feel about me not acting? And she was like, I feel great. Like, yes. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I think she was, you know, massively relieved, but also uh, she has always been just wonderfully and tremendously supportive, uh, whether it was this or, you know, if I'd pursued entertainment. And so I think for me, um, just as I've, as I prayed about it, it was one of those things where I, I think we all come to points in our journeys of faith where we feel like, man, I just wish, I wish, uh, whether you wish God gave you a sign or you wish you had heard of his voice stronger or any number of things. And for me, it was like, man, I've, I've never before in any area of my life felt so strongly that I'm supposed to do something that at that point I wasn't doing. And I just like, man, I, I just, I, as I kept praying about it, there was sort of no question. I was like, all right, I have no idea how I'm going to do this. Right. I, by all accounts on paper, I really have no business doing what I'm doing. I don't have a degree in nonprofit management or business. I don't have a degree in water. Um, and yet I, I was like, well, I just feel like this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I have sort of done if I've done anything halfway decently in the last decade, it's sort of doing the one thing that I know how to do well, which is tell a story and find people who are great at the, the many, many things I don't know anything about, uh, or at that point, you know, didn't know anything about. I've learned quite a bit over the last decade, but telling them the story of the people without safe water, bringing them around the table and getting them to use their skill sets, their acumen, their talent, their resources to help us build what we've built. I love that. <laughs> you don't have a degree in water. Does anyone have a degree in water? I know how to drink it. Like, so oh, yeah. Hydro hydrologists. You oh, know, I uh, see. Civil, civil engineers. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, nah, that's like a whole different thing. It must have been quite a big change, though, to go from as a young person, knowing that you wanted to be uh, in the um, acting community and, you know, moving to where it's all happening in Hollywood as a young person, getting a degree, and then all of a sudden, no, actually, I'm going to do something completely different with my life. It must have been kind of, was it scary? I mean, was it, was it scary? Or was it a case of, yeah, it's okay, I'm 18, I'm 19, 20. I can, I'm resilient. I can try anything. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a bit of both, right? I think going back to some of your initial questions, not even about me, but about young people, I think the, one of the things we now know to be true as we've worked with lots of young people is, uh, and this was true about me at the time was like, we don't know what we don't know. Right. And so, yeah. uh, I, I had the benefit of ignorance on my side and it's been like, all right, well, I'm going to figure it out and God's going to make it happen. And, uh, and so I think for me early on, there was definitely a mixture of fear, uh, you know, fear, not even necessarily around failing um, necessarily or anything like that, but it was more fear of just like, I think insecurity, right? That idea that I mentioned earlier of like, man, like, I really don't have any right to be stepping into this role. Like I haven't studied in or earned uh, this, this role. And yeah. yet by every single person I speak to or every sort of time I consider this in prayer, like this is where I feel like I'm supposed to be. And so, uh, I think it was a little bit more of that kind of insecurity of like, man, how, how on earth am I going to do this? Um, and I remember 
the I was at the Global Leadership Summit that they do at Willow Creek, and we we take our team every year to one of the satellite locations. But this is a lot. This is like eight nine years ago. Uh, there was a, a a guy who was speaking, and uh, I forget his name now, but he said something that I thought was so powerful, which was super relevant to where I was at the time, which was you know how many of you are facing challenges in your leadership at work or your organization or your church who have spent hours and hours pour on your knees, you know, pouring over spreadsheets, trying to figure out how you're going to make it work. And how many of you have spent that same amount of hours on your knees, sort of asking God for how it's going to work. And so I was like, you know, I I was that guy. I was like, man, I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know. I'm trying to learn as much as I can about running a business, managing a nonprofit, uh, working in water, right? Just that the space in and of itself is very particular because there's so much there's so many groups and there's been so much work that's been done with the best of intentions, but they've been quite hurtful or, or, or damaging. You know, the, the probably least sexy statistic in our space is that 64% of all water projects implemented by foreign nonprofits just on the continent of Africa, not counting Southeast Asia or South Central America, fail in the first year. Wow. And then if you pull back the curtain on those so-called failures, over 90% of them are what we would consider really easily uh, repairable or inexpensive fixes that communities can and should themselves be trained to do, uh, but it takes a little bit more time and money on the front end to do so. And so for us, right, like uh, there were so many things I didn't know at the beginning where I, I wanted to make sure, like, man, I'm, how am I stewarding these resources and this position and this role? Like, with the best, uh, best integrity that I can. And so, uh, yeah, there was definitely fear. There was, there was definitely uncertainty. Um, but I think to the point I've made earlier, I think for me, it's just being self-aware of all of the many things that I'm not good at and don't know what I'm doing and, and finding people who are great at those things and bringing them around the table, uh, to help lead us through where we need to go. So powerful, though, just to re- just to be aware of the fact that just because we don't feel like we've earned something doesn't mean that it's not ours to pursue or ours to have. And there's that argument. There's an argument to have there that God equips those He's called. So if He's called you, you know, that's really good advice. Stop pouring over the spreadsheet and spend time with God and actually pray it in. I think that's amazing. Well, speaking of all the things that you've learned, what do you now know? that you didn't know 10 years ago, which is around the time that you started um, the project, which would you which would, you would suggest or pass on to other or younger people? Um, what do you have to pass on and what or what do you think we should be mindful of? Uh, so for me, there's so many things that I, it's sort of hard to pinpoint like one or two. Like I said, when, I, when we first started a decade ago, I really knew very little about running an organization or, uh, you know, more specific to our organization, very little about the water and, and sanitation sector. And so one of the beautiful things for me that's been amazing over time, and it's taken, you know, a, a decade or so, is finding myself now surrounded by some of the most incredible business minds and leaders in the world who have so generously given up their time and their resources to help structure and architect the facilities and and sort of foundation upon which we operate and I've learned from them and now finding myself in a position where uh, you know, I, I can speak on that and I, I do feel confident, right? Like I, it, it's funny now to be in a position 10 years later where I'm such a different person as anyone would be, you know, a decade later, but that, and to find myself in 
invited to to speak into the lives of other businesses or organizations based off of our experiences and and to feel confident doing so, not because of who I've always been, but because of who I have learned from and what I've learned, right? And so uh, learning strategically how to manage growth, how to figure out how to set strategy for each of our departments and overall organizational goals. And then similarly learning from people who have really invested and believe in us in the water sector. And we've got a group that is separate from our actual board. That is a, a, what we call our water project technical board. And it's a group of civil engineers and hydrologists who meet every quarter, just like our regular board. But unlike our normal board, they could care less about how much money we raise, how we spend that money. They only look at where projects are being built, what types of projects should be built, how our sustainability practices are implemented. Um, and so I have learned similarly a great deal about how to go about sustainably building multiple different types of water projects and working with communities. And so um, those are two key areas of my life that are, you know, I, I'm now super confident in. And, uh, and so I think for me, it's just, I've learned so much in both of those categories along the way that it, you know, I think to your point earlier, I, I got equipped over time, uh, in areas that I previously was, you know, certainly on paper not really uh, equipped to do at all. Right. So actually a lot of what you've learned or you've had to learn, you've done so on the journey. So it took you stepping out and going on the journey and, and starting uh, thirst project. And then you've picked up skills along the way. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to have to let you go, but before I do, um, tell me what is next for you for Thirst Project in 2019 as we've just started a new year. How can we be praying for you? What are you hoping um, to really achieve or maybe you're trying new projects for the first time? What are your big goals this year? Yeah, absolutely. We, I kind of describe us as an awkward teenager right now. You know, we're, we're not tiny. We're not hoping we can get an, uh, an idea off the ground and raise $10,000 or $100,000, but you know, we're also not by any means the Red Cross, right? And so I think for us, we kind of cracked the code on how do you spend a million dollars to raise $2 million. Now we're trying to crack the code on like, how do you spend two or $3 million to raise $10 million? And so uh, there are a lot of really exciting things that are coming down the pipe for us. This is our 10th anniversary. And so uh, there's so many things that we're celebrating, but also new initiatives that we're trying this year for the first time. One of the things being that I'm most excited about we have always had the benefit of being able to work with so many different students and teachers across hundreds and hundreds of campuses across the country and even around the world. Uh, but we, while we get the benefit of seeing those students intimately and you know learning about what they're doing and helping support them on their goals, they only kind of see what happens within the confines of their own school campuses. And so uh, you know what we're doing for the first time this coming summer is uh, in July at Pepperdine, we're actually having about 200 of our top student and teacher leaders from 200 of our top schools fly in for a three-day, what we're calling Legacy Summit, where it's kind of one part summer camp, one part UN General Assembly, one part Beyonce concert is sort of how we're billing it. But basically <laughs> bringing in, you know, quite honestly, like ambassadors to countries that we work in and world leaders as well as celebrities we work with to really both invest in the leadership development of those leaders of our students, but also provide them with amazing experiences to connect with each other and build community amongst this incredible network that exists across the country and across the world that we work with. And so we're super excited about that. It's the first time we've ever done it before and uh, everyone is just like brimming with excitement about it. So that's probably the 
the most immediate thing. And then the other thing is we've we've answered the question over the last uh, year or so, you know, how do we measure the impact we're making on young people? And so we undertook about a year ago this massive data project uh, that we analyzed and have figured out really how do we measure and define what it means to be a socially conscious and active young person and how do we measure before and after Thirst Project, how we've moved a student through that process and some of the impact has just been fascinating. So uh, continuing to take that data now to education foundations and other funders who may not just be interested in water projects but are interested in the way that we're shaping youth culture and young people um, to really grow our overall impact because our goal is in the next two years how do we 2x from where we are to where we want to be and so uh so that's really sort of what's immediately coming this year definitely pray for all of that pray for our leadership pray for our board pray for our donors and corporate partners and and of course certainly our students and the people we serve well, absolutely. And there's so much there that you have going on this year. It sounds very exciting. It sounds like a massive challenge, but I have no doubts that you will just smash it out of the park. Seth, thank you so much for your time and thank you for um, really educating me, not just about your journey, but about some of the issues that are faced by people all around the world and how we can help. It's been really inspiring. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Seth Maxwell for speaking with me today. You can find out more about Thirst Project's initiatives and give one person clean water for life for just $25 over at thirstproject.org. Thanks for listening. I so look forward to having your company again soon. 